When it comes to your KiwiSaver account, do you feel connected and in control? I know I'd like to, and it turns out I'm not alone. It's why Sharesies have created a new kind of KiwiSaver scheme, one that gives you real choice for the first time. With the Sharesies KiwiSaver scheme, you can invest your KiwiSaver balance and contributions in the companies and funds that matter to you the most. It's the choice you've been waiting for. Go to sharesies.nz forward slash KiwiSaver to find out more. Sharesies Investment Management Limited is the issuer of Sharesies KiwiSaver Scheme. View the latest product disclosure statement at www.sharesies.nz forward slash KiwiSaver forward slash documents. Kia ora and welcome to the Fearless Podcast powered by Puma. I'm your host Brodie Kane and I'm so excited to share with you the stories of some of New Zealand's top sportswomen. We've been working with Puma to uncover how these women have got where they are today, the challenges they've faced along the way, the boundaries they've had to push, their hopes, their dreams and fearless attitudes that have shaped who they are as well as their place in what we know has for a long time been a male-dominated arena. We'll ask them about their role in making sure women are seen, heard and treated as equals. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today's guest, Dame Susan DeVoy, New Zealand's greatest ever squash player four-time World Open and eight-time British Open champion, completely dominated the sport throughout the 80s and early 90s. And I dare say her passion for squash has not slowed down. It's well known. Dame Susan is a fearless person off the court as she is on, saying she's always been a little terrier that fights for the underdog. It is so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Now, nothing quite says the little terrier that fights for the underdog than what you are currently doing. Um, You are manning reception. You even clean toilets at Club Calburn, which is where we are today in Wellington. And that's been part of, you've been involved in that to ensure that it hasn't closed down. I mean, that's pretty grassroots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I got involved about six months ago. Uh, A decision was made to close Club Calburn and um, even possibly demolish it. And the locals here, both squashies and members of the gym that have been coming here for a long, long time, there's a lot of history in this building, approached me to see if I could... I was probably the likely candidate, wasn't it? If anyone was going to lead a protest, it would be me. And, yeah, through a lot of hard work, actually, I had to resign as patron of Squash New Zealand and go on the board of Squash New Zealand, which wasn't generally my intention either. And a long, 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 long backstory. We were given a stay of execution to convince the board to change their mind uh, and we did and then we had to find the money to invest in some urgent building repairs so that we could get a lease from the council uh, so we're here we're back in business um, but the status quo is not an option you can see it's a very tired tired old lady I call her a bit like myself really <laughs> um, and she needs a bit of a, an upgrade um, so yeah so I'm going to be here a little bit longer than I than I anticipated, but um, it was the right thing to do. The easiest thing would have been to walk away, but then we would lose eight squash courts in the centre of Wellington, and that's not great for our sport. Well, I mean, between that and your involvement in still up in Tauranga when you get to get back there, which is home at the moment, um, it's pretty clear that your your passion for the sport hasn't waned in the slightest. I mean, that's nearly thirty years after retiring at the top of the game. Why is that? 
I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, to say it's in your blood? Um, but it is, and both my husband John and I, that's how we met. It's been a huge part of our life, still is. You know, we have a magnificent uh, state-of-the-art facility in Tauranga called the Dame Susan DeVoe Squash and Fitness Centre. <laughs> so it's the opposite, really. We've got a state-of-the-art facility up there that's doing really well, you know, um, which proves that squash isn't dead, and then we've got the other end of the scale here. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. Being here has been fantastic, actually. I it, it's just brought home to me how important not just the game is, but the whole being fit and healthy and and how much of a buzz people get out of being active. Does your generosity and selflessness have a lot to do with how you grow up and, and the environment that you were in in Rotorua with your parents, a very strong sense of community, people always around and your parents always looking out for others? You definitely. Um you know, I think it frustrates the hell out of my husband. Um, I call him the fiscal Fuhrer, you know. <laughs> like when I sent him the quote from my dentist bill yesterday, he was like, well, it's time to get a real job that pays then, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, you know, I'm the youngest of seven children. I've got six older brothers. Uh, I've got six brothers and no sisters, and now I've got four sons and no daughters. So I've been well and truly punished for all the terrible things I've said about men in my life, so it would serve me right. Um, but, you know, I grew up with my parents calling housie every week for, well, as long as I can remember to raise money for the school. They helped build the squash club there at Geyser City. You know, my mother was, it was known as Tui's Diner, so everyone that came for a squash tournament in uh, Rotorua in those days would come to my parents' house at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. My mother would get up and cook them steak, eggs and chips, and on the condition that they stayed and drank a bottle of beer with her. Um, but yeah, it was just, uh, and my father taught me two things. Firstly, never forget where you came from and never forget the people that have helped you along the way. And so, yeah, I mean, that's it. But you know, this has been, as much as I've contributed to the project here, this has been really good for me too, because I was at a bit of a loose end. I think COVID changed the entire landscape for a lot of people. You know, I'm, I'm too young to be retired. I didn't want to be in a proper job. You know, I didn't want the stress of being in public life anymore. Um, and this is somewhere where I could contribute my skills and expertise. But I've also learned a hell of a lot, you know. I never never thought I'd know how to use zero. Well, there you go. Yeah. Hey, yeah, look at yeah. you go. And I've branched out uh, from cleaning toilets because we now have a commercial cleaner, which was a generous, very generous offer. And that's what's happening is people have now get, got behind the project and we're starting to see things happen. Awesome. Work. With your family, again, six older brothers, and you traipsed around with them a lot, sort of following them on their sporting adventures. Is that sort of where the interest in squash started? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have really any option. My parents would go along with my brothers. I mean, some of my brothers had left home by the time I was even born. Um, but, uh, you know, squash was relatively new to them, and uh, they loved, they would go to tournaments. Sometimes I wasn't even... Children under 10 weren't allowed in the building, so you know they sort of snuck me in, and they would spend as much time in the bar having a drink after their games or watching my brothers play, and I just used to go on the court and hit the squash ball to fill in hours and hours until they were time to go home. So I think everyone thought it would be the last thing that I would do, but um, yeah, I, I just I just loved it. I wish my mother had put a tennis racket or a golf club in my hand because I seem to think that I might have had the same success there. Hopefully. Well, it's like hand-eye coordination, isn't it? I don't have it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, no, and you can see it's, you know, uh, and it's been, you know, 
luckily our boys have got that too. You know, that's and they've got a natural tendency for that. And if you know, um, yeah. So I, was, I suppose I was just lucky. Now you left school at seventeen, managed to get a job. I love this through your dad's mates as a builder's labourer to save enough money to get yourself to Europe to play squash. I mean, that's a huge commitment and like a big punt, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, you know, being the only daughter, my father in particular, I think had great aspirations that I would, you know, go to university or whatever. Uh, so I left school unexpectedly and... <laughs> That's all right. Just for everyone listening, we are in pretty much reception at Club Kelvin. So if the phone rings, the phone rings. Yeah, and my receptionist is about to go, so I might have to get up and answer the phone myself. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I um, I left school, didn't tell my parents that I'd left school, and for three weeks I used to get dressed in my school uniform hide under the house until they'd gone to work. Um, but they finally, uh, you know, found out that my father said, well, if you're going to do that, you have to get a job. So I got a job in the, on the... They were building the Sheraton Hotel then, and that's... And again, another job as the only female on a crew of about 60 blokes. So, you know, I was left to do the uh, smoko and get the cups of tea and sausage rolls. Um, so, yeah, but that got me enough money. Uh, and with the help of the New Zealand Sports Foundation, then I got enough money to go to England. And I thought, like, going to... Flying to Heathrow was a bit like catching the bus from Rotorua to Auckland. You know, I was so naive... And um, it nearly killed me that first year. But, yeah, I mean, you know, a combination of thinking I was much better than I was, losing most first rounds, and, uh, you know, a huge dose of homesickness. Um, but, yeah, I went back because I knew there were so many people. I'd seen the story before of so many people going and finding how hard it was and never going again. And so, you know, I had a lot of backing, a lot of support from my family to go again. And, and I was very lucky because then I met my coach, and his partner, then Marie, and they sort of became a base for me, and that was that was sort of the change really for me. When you decided that you like you'd had the tough year, and you're like, no, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not finished. This is not it. How long was it then before I guess the pendulum swung, and you were like, that was a really good decision, and and starting to feel like it was was a great decision to make. Yeah, I think the difficulty in the first year is that you're pretty much alone and you have to sort of, you know, as a 17, 18-year-old, find your way from place to place, stay in a different, you know, you're either billeted or couch surfing or scrounging a bed somewhere to stay and it's a, it's an awful existence when you, when you look back. And the following year, I, you know, I managed to get a base where I stayed in someone's home and, you know, I had a full-time coach and... Uh, it just made an enormous difference. You know, I couldn't have carried on like I had in the first year, but the first year made me pretty resilient uh, and was a real dose of reality. When you won the British Open and you were the world number one by the time you were 20, how did life change when the success started? Like, what what started happening? That oh, It sort of changed immediately, really, because I remember, I mean... You know, when you've won a lot over your lifetime and people ask you, I can't even remember who I would have played in all those British Ovens, but I can remember my first and I can remember my last. And the first I remember, you know, running off the court, and I think there's some video footage of that, because my mother was waiting in Rotorua uh, for the Daily Post to ring, you know, and I rang her and she goes, oh, hello. I was like, is that you, Mum? <laughs> yes. I was like, what on earth? Well, we've got your media voice on, have you? And she's, oh, that's wonderful, darling. You know, and I thought, oh, goodness gracious. Um, you know, and I got sackfuls of telegrams. I just thought, you know, it's unbelievable that 
it felt like the entire country was, you know, and a telegram from the Prime Minister and an invitation to that. And then, you know, I got the offer of a sponsored car when I came home and um, it, it became less of a grind, I think, you know, financially. Um, and so it was... Uh, you know, it changed, made things a lot easier, but it also, expectations then became greater and greater and greater. <laughs> what was it like being a professional sportswoman in the 80s and 90s? <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, uh, I suppose I was grateful that squash was always professional. It was never, you know, I had gone past, you know, I came onto the scene after, you know, there was an amateur professional, so it was just that. But, you know, I look back now and think how ridiculous it was, a 17-year-old wanting to go and be a professional sports person, a sports person in a minority sport. I mean, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, what was I thinking? And probably now know why my father was so concerned. Um, and professional makes it sound like you make money, really. But it was just... Uh, you know, I went and watched that movie Girls Can't Surf the other day about the women surfers in the 80s and what they went through. And I thought, you know, that's not too dissimilar to what we would have... What, what we did go through in terms of trying to, you know, have that battle about equality... It wasn't even about equality, it was just about a bigger slice of the pie, you know, because our slice was sort of the real leftovers. So, you know, it was the men stayed in hotels, we got billeted. The men got picked up and we had to catch the bus, the train or walk to, you know, whatever. The prize money was always, you know, I don't know, £15,000 and then 1500 you know, the scraps were left for the women and... Um, and so, I, you know, I took it upon myself, particularly here in New Zealand, to see if we... Well, not to see if we, to actually demand, really, that... Because in those days, squash was incredibly popular, much more than it is now, and sponsorship was easy to come by and whatever, And but that unashamedly was because of my success and, and Ross Norman and other contemporaries, but, you know, we were still playing for less, and then there were little sort of... little backhanders to keep her quiet, you know, like, <laughs> we'll give her this. Appearance money, they might call it. Um, and I just, you know, it's you have a responsibility, I think, if you're the number one to actually lead that discussion. Um, but there was a lot of solidarity in the change rooms, but not much when you came outside, you know. And I could understand that, you know, people didn't want to... It's hard to, you know, single it, sort of stand up for something and make a stand if it's not... If you're not comfortable doing it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing being number one in the world... And, yeah, people being really interested in what you do, but then I imagine there being a lot of pushing and pulling and people telling you what you can say and cannot say and sponsors and all of that stuff. And it must have been quite tricky, yeah, wanting to stick your head up and be like, this is not okay, but also having that commercial pressure. Yeah. I don't think it's anything like it is today for, for athletes. You know, I mean, basically people today, sports people, seem pretty hamstrung by what they can and can't say, you know. Uh, and also I was lucky that social media wasn't invented back then, so, you know. Um, but, you know, I've always, I've never been afraid to say what I think, and I don't, I've learned that's not always the way to masterfully get what you want. Um, but back then I, you know, I was brash and obnoxious, I suppose. And I had a couple of fights with the media, particularly the British media, over the years. And, you know, when I was about 21, I read something that was completely untrue about myself and I really went into battle and, you know, lost miserably, um, which irked me somewhat. And from then on, I never read anything about me in the media. Never. Not the good, the bad or the ugly. 
And I carried that right through, basically, when I had my role as the Race Relations Commissioner because you just it's just a massive distraction and it eats you up inside. Um, so it's not to say that I don't know what's being said because you, you surround yourself with trusted advisors who will tell you whether that's, you know, this is the state of the nation, this is what's being said about you and this is what you should, you know, that's the sort of thing. But, you know, I don't... Yeah, you know, or or read the comments, or mm. even articles. You know, I mean, I am who I am. I'm not going to be able to change that opinion of people. So, have you noticed in squash, in particular, uh, a change in equality uh, with men and women, or would you say it's quite similar to when you were playing? No, no. I think of you know, I compare it to a lot of sports, and I think it's done actually quite an amazing job really um, in terms of there are lots of major tournaments that are that have equal prize money um, you know I'm not close enough to the circuit to understand you know whether the treatment or the conditions or the but it seems to be and there seems to be a really genuine uh, support from the male professionals which is not necessarily what happened in my in my career you know I mean a lot of the players, you know, quite dismissive of of females. But, you know, the major events, the British Open and others, have always been male and female. Um, there's been the PSA circuit is male and female. So, you know, it's um, from what I see, um, some of the female squash players might say it's completely different, but what I see, it's a pretty good, pretty good example. Would you say that the conditions or feeling like you were fighting for equality when you were at the top of your game, did that make you tougher? Um, not really. It was just, it's ingrained in me, you know. Toughness. Well, if I see something wrong, I'm not going to sit back and, you know, let it happen. I'm going to try and do something about it. But you know what, back then I think it was women got 12% of media coverage, you know, in New Zealand, I think, around sport. I think now it's only about 15% or something. I don't think it's changed an awful lot. I mean, it's still an uphill battle, isn't it? I mean, we've seen some amazing uh, changes, but the reality is they shouldn't be amazing. You know, we shouldn't be saying, oh, look, yay, the first women's rugby game's been televised, you know. Um, when that doesn't, when it becomes normal and not doesn't make headlines, then we should be... But, you know, the argument that we don't see, that women aren't, you know... I mean, it was always the same with me. I mean, Jahanga Khan was obviously going to always thrash me and half the men in the world will always thrash me. But I used to say, well, you know, you don't put a bantamweight in, into the ring with a heavyweight and that's how, you know, I would describe it. And, you know, for squash, um, you know, particularly now, I watch as many people get as much joy, or if that's the word, and interest out of watching the women compete the top-level women, as they do as they do the men. I was having a conversation with my personal trainer about media coverage and the exposure that women's sport has not had over the years in terms of what we watch, um, rugby, football, basketball, in, anything that you can think of that has so often been growing up, watch the men's sport, growing up, go to the stadium, watch the men's sport, when in actual fact... The more we are seeing and being able to watch of the women's sport, geez, it's beautiful. We're very, very wonderful at sport, and it's a joy to watch. Yeah, I think there's too too many comparisons. 
you know, I think they should be standalone. That women's football is women's football. It's not men's football, and it's not women trying to play men's football, you know. Um, and I just think that the more that, uh, you know, that more airtime that's given, I mean, it's like anything, you know, you necessarily, I mean, I lived in Melbourne for a year or so, and, it, you know, most Kiwis would say that AFL is just, you know, rubbish, 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 because we are rugby fans. But, you know, if you live in a country and you see it all the time and you watch it, then you you understand the rules, you get to know the players, and you start to appreciate the sport. And the same with, and one, dare I say, I think it's one thing that Australia does an awful lot better than New Zealand is the promotion of women's sport. You know, their football teams, their AFL teams, you know, their their leagues, their competitions are serious, you know, and they're given sort of credit for being the athletes they are. Um, I want to go back to you retiring at the top of your game. Um, what a terrible decision that was. Well, was it? <laughs> Talk to me about it. I want to know about some of the reasons that you decided to stop playing. Well, you know, I'd been doing it since I was 17. And, you know, I was 28. And I had a pretty miserable year in 91. I lost the British Open unexpectedly. Uh, I found out that I was expecting a baby, uh, which was a bit of a surprise. Um not, you know, I mean, I'm, I'd been married for a long time and, you know, but I didn't think that I would, you know, it was the last thing I, so when I found out that I was having a baby, I was, it was the eve of the New Zealand Open, actually, and it sort of made me understand why I'd been out of sorts and wasn't performing very well. Uh, and I had to make a decision that day, you know, finding out the day before that, you know, what was I going to do? And... Um, on that night, my dad had a serious stroke behind the wheel of the car coming, actually driving to come and watch me play. And so I pulled out of the tournament. They didn't even know that I was expecting my parents. I had a miscarriage that night. My dad was, I mean, it was the beginning of the end for him, really. Uh, and so I, you know, I wanted to give up and, you know, chuck it all in then and, Helped my dad through his recovery and was as good as that got. And, you know, I just realised rather than chucking it in, I had an opportunity perhaps to... I know that's what he would have wanted most. And I had unfinished business. I suppose it's not the way I would have chosen to go out. So I went, came back the next year in 92 and I... I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say I trained harder than ever or whatever, but, you know, I, um, I just won everything, blitzed everything and... The world's at the end of that year. I woke up in the morning and I said to John, I said, win, lose or draw today, I'm going to retire. And it was like, <laughs> there was a big gulp. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, you know, I loved training as much as I loved competing. So, but the training was becoming a bit of a grind. And, you know, and I wanted to have a family. You know, I was near, I wanted to have a family at the time I was 30 and... God, if someone had said to me I was going to have four boys in five years' time, I would have kept playing for at least another two or three years and only had two of them. So, you know, I was like, oh, goodness, why couldn't someone tell me? But, um, yeah, so that's really, uh, you know, I just couldn't do any more. The, tra- the travelling, the training. I mean, it's a tough sport, squash. It's not like, well, I shouldn't say well, it's not like other sports, but, you know, it's... Um, you know, living for long periods of time away. John was, you know, setting up a business here and, you know, trying to get a real job, so I was travelling a lot on my own and, yeah, I just just had enough. 
I don't want to use the word juggle because um, even though I've just said it out loud, but for women, professional sports women who want to have children, that is clearly an added challenge. Yeah. I mean, you know, there aren't... I can't think of any squash players who've had a child and then come back at the very top. You know, um, some sports you can juggle that. Uh, but squash is a sport that generally you're competing most weekends uh, of the year. You know, it's not a one-in-a-four-year cycle or a, you know, it's a, you're on the circuit for long periods of, or most periods of the year. Um, so, you know, you know that when you make that decision, that's the decision. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty tough, really. Um, but ironically, when I did retire and made that decision, I was pregnant again and I didn't know it. <laughs> And then four boys, all sporty? Very. Yeah. And you've got one that's... All legends in their own lunchtime, apart from our eldest. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, yeah, a combination of um, both both John and I, you know. Um, our eldest is, you know, trying to qualify for the Olympics. He's a middle distance runner. we got no idea where he got those fast jeans and skinny legs from um, as my mother used to say there's never any doubt who the mother is Um, and then you know our kids have just been typical Kiwi boys who've played just about everything Um, and they've played a lot of squash two of my other sons went to college in America on um, squash scholarships so yeah again it's, it's and you know they they didn't get into squash because of me. It was probably they went along with their father, you know, because he... Because when I retired, I retired. You know, I didn't play, go near a squash club, apart from with our children for for years and years and years and years and years. You know, so... Um, but, yeah, no, no. Um, and, you know, they're older now. They're in their 20s. They should be independent and not living at home. <laughs> um, you know, and they love golf and they love cricket and they play indoor netball. They just play everything and anything. Do you look at, when you look back at retiring, is there anything that you think you wanted to do or could have done differently? No, I mean, I can't, you know, I wasn't in a position when I was competing on the circuit to, you know, study and get a degree and whatever, but I realised that once I retired and, you know, I thought that I would want to be a full-time stay-at-home mother forever, Um but, you know, that was uh, uh, getting a job would probably be a, uh, an easier option than staying home. And, and, and look, our situation changed and I, you know, had to work. And, but I have, I've had to keep invent, reinventing myself, you know. I mean, and that's the reality when you've got four kids and, you know, you want to give them the best of everything in, in their lives. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I was the CEO of Sport Bay of Plenty. I sat on a number of boards for my sins. I went on the Auckland District Health Board. You know, I'd approaches from most political parties to stand. I mean, and that's all about celebrities. That's nothing about you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I just did a million different things. I suppose it's fun. It's funny that, that you one s- funny out, haven't I? Well, it's funny that you say that because I, I have got here that you have worn a lot of different hats yeah. alongside legendary squash player, um, and a lot of that has been giving back to the community, and and one of your most recent roles being race relations commissioner what is your motivation for doing roles like that which yeah they are high profile and people are looking at you instead of just as you say 
cruising in the background. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my priority unashamedly has always been about my children and, um, you know, and my husband. But <laughs> I remember my mother saying, who had had seven children, she said, uh, your children will be your life, Susan, but don't give up your life for your children. And so most of the things that I'd done when I retired had been in a voluntary capacity, you know, whether it was chairing the Halberg Trust for 12 years and, you know, the kids got dragged along to things and whatever, and most of what I did was unpaid. But, you know, I went on a number of boards and learned a whole lot of skills. I think people make this, put you in this box that you're just a sports jock, you know, and you're never going to have anything else to contribute or offer. Um, and that's certainly not the case, you know, and I think... Um, Undeniably, I think, you know, I believe that if you can make, I hate to say make a difference, or make a contribution, or do a job, then, you know, it's like sport. You back yourself to do it, and you make do the preparation that's required to do it. So, you know, when I, I think it's ironic when I was appointed as the Race Relations Commissioner that I came under the barrage of criticism that I did. I mean, fair enough. People are entitled to say they don't think that, you know, you might not be the most appropriate candidate, but, you know, they hadn't even given me a chance to actually uh, prove myself. But, you know, those experiences make you even stronger or more determined to go on. And, and that's what it, the hardest thing about everything in life is if you have some, a position like that or whatever, you stand out for the crowd, you've got to be incredibly brave because it can crush you if you're not. So you've got to believe in your principles and stick up for your values and know that, you know, you can, you can do something and, you know, and after all of those things, they're just amazing experiences. At the time, you might not think it, but later on in life, or later on down the track, when you're doing something else, you realise it's just like sport. Those are the things that you learned, and you can apply them to something else. If you could teach or tell your younger self something, what would it be? Uh, not to be such a hothead. <laughs> <laughs> really? I think being a hothead's great, though. Yeah, yeah, there is, but, you know, I, um, I'm too emotional. You know, I wear my heart on my sleeve and, you know, I always, if I think I'm right or believe I'm right, I'll go to the ends of the earth to prove it. And I've learnt in life that that's not necessarily... I, uh, look, what I would say to myself is I always did things for the right reason. I didn't necessarily always do them the right way and... I think, you know what, if you can swallow a bit of humble pie in your life sometimes and realise that actually um, there are different ways of doing things and achieving the same outcome, and I've learned that now at 57 years of age, I wish I'd known that at 17 because I wouldn't have got myself in so much trouble. <laughs> awesome. I, I do love that. That's that, I think I could teach a bit of myself yeah, that well, as well. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, people have, for right, rightly or wrongly, and it'll be the same for you, have, will make a perception of who you are without even knowing you. And I always say, well, I'm tough as nails. Tough as nails on the outside and soft as a marshmallow on the inside. And that's what makes me who I am. So I've got that competitive streak to actually do stuff, but I've got that empathy that understands. And I think, if anything, sport doesn't necessarily teach you that, but the other roles that I've had do. If this pen was a magic wand and I could give it to you to change and improve the environment for women in sport, what would you do with it? Uh, I would make transformational change in terms of insisting, insisting that there was a 50-50 share of media coverage 
for a sh- period of time anyway to try and get people to realise how, how good women's sport is. Brilliant. I like that. Nice and simple. Clear. I love it. Um, and my last question is, if you could be fearless about the future or if you are fearless about the future, what does it look like? Well, we wouldn't be sitting here having discussions about how women uh, are always fighting, struggling to get a fair share of just about everything that's associated with not just sport, but life in general. I mean, here's an example. The Devoy Squash and Fitness Centre posted a post a week ago of a blokes-only tournament, and I made a little comment. There weren't a lot of comments... And I said, blokes only? Seriously? Aren't we in the 21st century? And the response from my own club, and I don't know who the author was, well, you know, we have women's interclub, we have R18 tournaments where there was a stripper, and, you know, as if to say, well, what's wrong with having a blokes only tournament? And the reality is the person that wrote that didn't understand why we have to have women only events. You know, we have to have that because it's an environment where we have to encourage women to be you know, to be in a safe, supportive, inclusive environment because they feel so self-conscious when they play in events with and alongside the men. So they've lost the whole point of what I was trying to say, you know. it's You have men's interclub, women's interclub, all that, but, you know, so, God, people are so defensive, aren't they? You know, why should we have to explain ourselves all the time when we say that's not, you know? Um, and I just think, you know, we're a long way from that happening, but, you know... And I suppose the other thing that irks me, we have this committee set up for that and we have this committee set up for women's and this event, you know, and we teach these women to do something like this. And we, But, you know, the reality is that it's just so hard for women to break into that cycle of being treated as equal in a sporting environment. Just doesn't seem that complicated, but it's taken a hot minute. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And, you know, I thought... When I that's it, go back to watching that movie and looking at those women and think, God, they're so old, and that's me actually. Um, and how far really have we come? We haven't come that. We haven't come far enough. Yeah. Well, look, um, I know that you'll keep chipping away, and I wish you all the best here at Club Calburn, and hopefully it all gets sorted, and you can be back up relaxing in Tauranga soon. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure someone will. Um Find me out for another project. <laughs> I bet you, I bet you, bottom dollar they will. Dan, Susan, Devoy, thank you so much for joining us on the Fearless Podcast. And thanks for listening to the Fearless Podcast powered by Puma. We look forward to bringing you more conversations next week. Please send through your thoughts, your comments, your experiences. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow more Fearless stories on Instagram at Puma New Zealand and download more episodes from this series on all major podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify under The Girls Uninterrupted. 